I do think if we can all cultivate as much as we can kindness towards each other, that's what enables the system that we need for a different world. I'm Ben, and you're listening to The Climate Pivot. For today's episode, I spoke with Vedanta Kumar. Following a degree in philosophy, several years in the UK civil service, and a law conversion, Vedanta now works in the third sector. Based at the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, he manages a portfolio of grants to address climate change. We spoke in July against a backdrop of near-daily global temperature records. It felt like a timely moment to reflect on the state of UK climate policy, the role of activism, and the opportunities for philanthropy to drive systemic change. As you'll hear, Vedanta's full of wisdom, reflection, and curiosity, and I was so grateful to have the chance to chat with him. There's been a lot in the news about the climate. Has anything been kind of jumping out to you? So I'm speaking here in a personal capacity. The views are my own. They're not necessarily my organisation's. But definitely two things, of all the things, but two that really stand out. One is the UK and its pledges, and its failure to meet its pledges. I used to work in the UK government, as you know, and I think the UK was making good progress. And the UK was seen by wealthier countries as a climate leader that was definitely not doing enough compared to what's needed, but was doing more than many of its, uh, those are at a similar level of wealth and development. And it's now just falling off in a really big way. The Committee on Climate Change came out with this pretty hard-hitting report talking about how we're not only failing in this country, but failing internationally on our pledges. That's one. It really struck me because that's obviously not the way we need to be going when we're already behind as a, as a world. And it's really sad. It, it hits me as someone who used to work on a lot of this in government. And the other is just El Nino. You know, this is, you know, what they're saying, the hottest month on record for June. Yeah. And the idea that last year and the year before we saw so many horrific climate disasters and we were in a La Nina phenomenon, which is a cooling cycle. Now we're in a heating cycle. Who knows what's going to happen? So it's pretty scary. Those are, those are two that have definitely jumped out, not in a positive way. Yeah, for sure. I just keep on asking myself when there's going to be this, this kind of huge shift in public opinion, certainly in terms of the importance of this as a political issue. I kind of thought last summer would start to bring back that shift. Yeah. And I also thought the summer before might do that. And as you say, this year is already looking to be more unprecedented in all sorts of ways. And just the figures coming out of various meteorological organisations about what's actually happening and has been happening over the last few weeks is terrifying. Yeah, we're not where we need to be, for sure. And I think we're at a stage as a world where some of the harms that will be... You know, the, the world has always seen a lot of suffering. Some of the harms exacerbated by climate change that we were hoping to prevent, even back like 40 years ago, as a world, as a global community. You know, I think we need to accept that we will see those harms. And I think it's easier to accept when you're in a wealthier country, when you're slightly richer, for those who will suffer those harms, it's obviously it will hit a huge amount harder. But I think that acceptance is going to be one of the hardest things for the climate community that have for so long been saying, this is our mission to prevent climate from hitting certain climate thresholds. And now we, I don't know if we're going to be, whether our narrative is going to have to shift. Yeah, completely. And I, th- I think in, in some ways I do see that shift as a good thing, just in terms of there's, there's something very dry about these lines in the sand, you know, 1.5 degrees, 1.7 degrees, 2 degrees, and setting those dates in for 
particular emission reduction paths and so on, it feels really different from the reality, which is a very like embodied reality. And in a way, I think it's a good thing that those narratives are going to shift. It's a shame that, it, that they're shifting because they need to rather than because we've realized we can tell better stories about what's actually happening. But my thinking over the last few years has, has just really shifted, particularly thanks to reading several indigenous writers who, who talk about how particularly the, the Western narratives around the climate crisis are so rooted in this future apocalypse or this future kind of doom scenario. So many people from communities that have already experienced this are saying, well, actually, we, you know, our climate apocalypse happened 50 years ago or 100 years ago. The ecosystems in which we live and that we've relied on have been destroyed generations ago. And we're actually already on the forefront of adaptation and mitigation. And it really shifted my thinking into not considering this just like a future, a future problem. It really, really resonates with me. I remember when I was at university, I was studying philosophy, and one of the questions we had to grapple with was around intergenerational justice. And climate was used as the thing to think about. And it was this question of, do you have any moral obligation to people who aren't born today? Do we as a society have that obligation? And yeah, this was only about just over a decade ago. And there was a huge amount of understanding about climate in the scientific community and that question was so interesting now that I look back at it and I think, wow, why was it being framed in that way as a future harm when it's so obviously a present harm? And I think what you're describing is a succession of humanity ravaging our natural resources. And this is also the latest stage within it, but possibly the most fundamental and critical stage within it, where we are seeing nature shift beyond no return. 100%. I think what's interesting is that arguably this is a this is a problem of scales right the kind of metrics on which we are used to handling ethics dealing quite short time scales and quite small spatial scales and whether or not it is people in five generations or people 5000 miles away the ethical consideration should be the same but there is that distance whether it's a temporal distance or a spatial distance that just makes it quite difficult and i was i was just thinking recently because you know, obviously there's the debate around like opening new oil and gas infrastructure. And I just wish there was some way to quantify the harms that that would do. And I know that any attempt to is just going to be shot down by people who deny or minimize climate harms. But there's a human and a more than human cost to these things. And if only we could name that, if only there was a way to say, this is how many people will be displaced. There's something about that that I feel really uncomfortable saying, but if we could name that, I just feel we'd have such an easier go of it politically making our case. I agree with you to the extent that it would be amazing if we as a, you know, as a I'm going to say we in the collective, we are, we're better able to put clear numbers on the direct harms of climate. However, I also think on the flip side that we often do know the harm that we're causing with our political decisions and whether that's around the refugee crisis or whether that's around aid to, you know, and cuts to aid to developing countries and even acting on climate. I mean, we have a sense of how harmful it would be. I think there's obviously great, huge consensus and there has been for decades about the kind of level and magnitude of harm. And yet there's a reluctance I don't know, for me, it goes back to what you were, you were describing about like smart people around the world who are 
in tune with the need just to live in harmony with nature and with each other. And it's that like logic. Sometimes we need an alternative logic for our society. Mm, that's really interesting. I wonder if we could take this back a bit to when you started to engage with these questions and these issues. You mentioned that you studied philosophy. Did you go into your university studies with this in mind? Or is this something that has emerged since then? Yeah, not at all. It's amazing to look back and think the world had so much knowledge when I was growing up, when I was going through school and university about climate change and the harms it caused. Yet I didn't really feel I was that educated about it. And that might be partly my fault. So I'm not putting the blame on others. I think my climate education probably came in maybe three ways. One was just as a child, I think many children have a sense of injustice and it's it's very innate and it's just you ask your, your parents like why is someone sleeping on the street why are there people starving when i'd go to india and i'd see poverty everywhere and I, I mentioned that because climate change for me is fundamentally a human rights issue it's obviously an issue of nature and destroying our biodiversity but it is that is really, that's my gateway to it was humanity and seeing the harm that we are causing each other so that was probably one. The other that I remember was at university when thinking about climate change is this big intergenerational justice issue. Future generations could be wiped out, which, as I mentioned earlier, is, is strange because there was the understanding at that time to know this is really a present issue. And the third, which is really where I got into the climate world in a big way, and I was like, this is what I'm going to work on. This is my career, was I was actually already working on climate change. I'd fallen into it. But I remember a presentation that a scientist that the other department I was in, in in the UK government, a presentation that she did on the climate science and our latest understanding of it. And it was one of those moments where it just hit me in the face. It was, yeah, like a real smack across the, <laughs> across the cheek. I was like, this is enormous and huge. And how have we let it get this far? And how can I help? It's fascinating to me that you were already working in climate when that happened. Was there anything about this presentation that particularly felt new or that it presented the information in a new way yeah i often think about that because i'm thinking always how can we better tell the climate story to others and i think it all depends on the audience and for me at that time what i needed then was probably a better or clearer synthesis of the science and the evidence which i suppose i just hadn't had the time at that stage to fully get to grips with and I think working in a place like the UK government, where you're exposed to many different views from industry, from different political parties, and you see a lot of divergence about how far and how fast things should move. And I guess the philosopher in me was always questioning. And then I just, I needed just that clear story of the evidence. I think there's something there about one, the the passion. And I remember the presentation where it was deeply moving. It wasn't just facts and figures. And there was emotion injected into her presentation where you almost, you could sense the sadness and the optimism, both the sadness of what could happen, the optimism of what we could prevent and what we could create. I think it was that, but it was also just the simplicity. Someone as a non-scientist, I could just be like, okay, I completely get this and I completely need to dedicate my life to this. It's strange. You know, it's, it, it might also have been the accumulation of so many little bits of information and feelings and experiences that just needed a, a trigger. And it's often about timing, right, as well. Like, are you ready and primed to receive a particular message? And I think certainly a lot of people I speak to, it's not necessarily new information. It's stuff that they've been aware of. Maybe they had some sort of climate education in the past, probably inadequate. But as you say, that information is all 
there somewhere, but somehow the right message at the right time just yeah. just gets through. Totally. At that time, you were working for the civil service. Can you talk a little bit about your experience? I guess that was early to mid 2010s. It's actually a little bit later than that. Yeah, this is in... I was working in the civil service in the early to mid 2010s, and I was working on health policy. I worked on a range of different policies, and I ended up working on health policy, doing something I frankly didn't agree with that much. And I was volunteering at an asylum seeker support center at the same time, helping them apply for accommodation and food, which was their right, but they were often denied it. And what I felt during that time was increased anger, anger at the government, anger, anger, anger. And I thought I need a, a vehicle for this. I need to sue the government. That was basically my, my feeling at the time. So I did a training course in, in law. And to facilitate that, I needed a part-time job. And I remember coming back from a wedding one day, feeling incredibly inspired. It was just a beautiful wedding that was a friend of a friend of mine. And I thought, I need to find a part-time job. I found one that day, applied that day, and it was in climate. It was a total coincidence. In that job, my role was to... Oh, it was an amazing job. I was so, so lucky. Initially, it was to help negotiate the next 10 years of something called the emissions trading system in Europe, which is like this huge carbon tax that the power sector, aviation, and heavy industries had to pay. And very soon, actually, after I started that job, we we'd had Brexit. And it was very clear we were unraveling from this system that we'd helped negotiate, got a really good deal. It's a very powerful scheme, one of the pretty best policy instruments out there for climate change. And then suddenly my job was helping to build a new, a new trading system or equivalent for the UK. It was a yeah, really fascinating time. What has been your experience of that UK policy landscape post-Brexit as it pertains to climate in particular? So initially, it was actually pretty strong and pretty, pretty good compared to where other developed countries are and not compared to what's needed. No one's ever really done what's needed. It was pretty good and vibrant. The UK had been a leader in the EU on climate. And one of the commitments that the government made was to have policies essentially as good as or better than, stronger than those in the EU. So I think there was a mix. I think there was a general sense of this is a little bit of a, a waste of time sometimes, where in some cases, like what I was doing, replicating essentially what we already had in the EU and building it for the UK. So a lot of thought and people time spent on something that probably wasn't in an ideal world needed. At the same time, we were going to host COP, I mean, very soon after that, you know, after a couple of years of that, in this post-Brexit world, we were hosting COP26, so the big you know, meeting of all the countries to work on climate change. And that really injected a sense of dynamism and hope in the government. Everyone was like, yeah, you know, the UK is going to make things good again and put the world on track with this great conference. So I think also there, was, there was hope as well. I say all that, but I do think it was also frustrating. <laughs> and I'm thinking back. It was also frustrating because you're constantly fighting. We were in the climate department and the colleagues I worked with were incredible, really, really bright, really motivated and passionate and great to work with. But you're always fighting against a political agenda that doesn't necessarily prioritize this or against the agendas of other departments, especially the treasury that never wants to give you money for this. And so you're always fighting a fight that feels like it shouldn't be fought because it seemed, especially when you're in that world, that this is the most important thing, how can we not be prioritizing it? So it was also really, really tough at times. 
there's something odd about the fact that it's a place that is naturally going to attract quite a lot of people who feel very passionately about this issue. And yet part of the job, I guess, is is negotiating that balance between what is actual government policy. So you mentioned that you'd studied law while you were working part time. What has that training given you? And is it kind of what you expected it to? It definitely didn't take me where I thought it would. Because I, I was studying the law initially with the intention of suing the government for a range of human rights abuses related to asylum seekers and refugees. And that's what had motivated me to study study the law. But as I was studying it, I was also starting this job working on emissions trading, which I fell into. And very quickly, my legal training pivoted towards climate. And what I started focusing on, sometimes the intersection of refugee and climate issues, so the legal status of refugees, that are refugees because of climate, climate migrants. But a lot of the time, really, I spent my my legal training looking at environmental law and climate law in Iran. And I think legal training gave me so much. Of of course it does. One gives you a grounding of the law that governs all the rules that everyone has to play by, ostensibly, which is incredibly helpful. It's also like a way of thinking, which was helpful for me to train. One that is around very analytical, problem-solving. You go quite deep into issues and you have to be really precise. And all of that stuff matters for climate, which at one level is incredibly broad and high level. At the other end, is very precise and specific. But it ended up coming all around because after leaving government, we had the role I now do, one of the areas I oversee in our grant-making portfolio, which I have at this philanthropy, is around legal strategies and litigation. So what I've spent part of my last three years working on is funding organizations that can use the law to hold companies and governments to account. It's come around in a weird way, as I think most things do in life. Yeah, these careers that are maybe more driven by a sense of purpose tend to follow maybe a slightly more idiosyncratic path, but often things come together. I've definitely found that myself, that something I sort of dipped my toe into five or ten years ago suddenly re-emerges in some unexpected way, which is quite gratifying. Yeah, right. I think there's something beautiful. Yeah, just like I'm trying to do more and more is like follow my intuition and my instinct. I don't know, you know, The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. I'm a hippie at heart and I love that book. And he talks about that. It's follow the omens, follow the signs. So, I mean, try to do that, get out of my head and look at them. That's very cool. So you've had this experience of the law and also of policy. And obviously the work you do now is not completely detached from either. But I just wondered, it's somewhat striking that you are now working a step removed from both of those areas. And would it be fair to say that that's a reflection of the fact that maybe you felt your impact could be better realised outside of those? Yeah, I think that's completely fair to say. With the law, I thought I'd want to be a barrister and I spent five days doing, I remember this vividly, in doing what they call mini pupillage, where you shadow a barrister for a few days. And I was so surprised, this guy was in total silence the whole time like 12 hours a day in silence. And I thought that, that I, I, that's not me at all. Like I, I love to work with people. And on the other hand, in government, on policy, I really deeply respect all the people that work on policy. And I respect those people who are activists. And I, I'm, I see myself as a bit of an activist when I was in government, working on policy, always trying to find little hooks to make the policy more ambitious than government probably wants it to be. But I felt I needed to be a bit freer to speak my truth and express myself. And I think working in philanthropy, the third sector, gives you that because there's a clear mission, which is what I'm really aligned with, which is how do we stop climate change? Not how do we stop climate change, also make sure 
politicians look good, also make sure the budget is spent in a certain way and, you know, all these other factors. You know, it's just how do we start climate change? It's very mission, I'm very mission aligned. But I also think for me, what I love is having quite a big view, like a bird's eye view over what's happening and trying to help find those areas of coordination and intersection. Where can different groups come together to make an even bigger impact? And that's what I think sitting at this layer of philanthropy does. You're trying to fund organizations, but you're doing that with a lens of what can NGOs do? What's their role? And also where are governments at? And how, what's the best way of influencing governments? So I'm kind of looking across both. And uh, yeah, I love that, that view that I can have. So tell me, tell me about your job at the moment. What does it look like on a sort of day-to-day basis? And what is that mission? So I work in climate philanthropy. I work at an organization called the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, or CIF, that gives grants to NGOs around the world that are working on, in my area, working on climate change. And essentially, the role is to work out which are the issues or the areas of climate change where giving grants can have the most impact, and then which are the organizations that can best deliver that impact, and then ultimately giving out those grants. That's what the role is. I sometimes, especially when I, like I speak to people who work in the private sector, I sometimes compare it to being an investor, where you're trying to work out which company to invest in, except we're not getting any return in finance. We're, the return we're getting is just climate impact, trying to reduce emissions. And on a day-to-day basis, it is really varied. I know everyone says that. Everyone's thing about their job is, oh, it's different every day. And it's true. I think the key characteristics of philanthropy are that you're mixing a time possibly between maybe three levels. One is you're speaking to other funders and new organizations to try and understand what are the new ideas out there? What needs to be funded? You're spending time with, I spend time with the organizations that I give grants to, to work out how progress is going, where they're getting stuck, where they might need support and where other organizations I fund and my team fund can help. And then the other layer is, is internal. It's very much about within our organization, helping us to essentially create our theory of change and what we think is the most impactful way that we can function in this world of many philanthropies and many NGOs. So it's kind of working across those three levels. And I think the main characteristics that it encourages is partnership. There's a huge amount of partnership with other donors, with governments, with the private sector sometimes. A huge amount of partnership with NGOs that are the, really the leaders who are doing all of this work that we're funding and enabling. It requires a lot of attention to detail as well, where you're giving out grants, overseeing contracts, making sure, you know, you need to get to the, the details sometimes. And then the other part, which I think most people associate with philanthropy is strategy. Like you're always trying to come up with the next new idea that you think that the world needs. And that's really, that's really exciting. So when you get a strategy and you're working on it, and you see its potential, super exciting. And in terms of impact, I mean, it comes back to this question of quantifying, in a sense. How do you understand that impact? And how can you measure impacts that may be apples and oranges, so to speak? It's a almost impossible question that trying to answer numerically is, I think, impossible. Because what we do as a philanthropy, and many of our peers and partners do this, is try and fund what we call systemic climate action. So organizations that are trying to change the system in which we operate, change the political, economic, or financial system, or some legal system, or some other, 
And that that is always, as you say, it's apples and oranges. You can't compare them. You can't you you can't compare the systems. You often can't measure the ripple effect of the changes that we're trying to seek. So the way we look at it often is to try and understand well what are the key issues. An example being recently I've been working on our Brazil strategy, and we've been trying to think okay. In Brazil, what are some of the key issues? That's very clear. Land use here is a problem. Energy is a potential problem. And there's a real opportunity with Brazil hosting the COP30 and the G20 coming up. So we know the issues. Then we think within that, what are the ways in which civil society can play a role in addressing those issues? And that's when we speak to lots of our partners, lots of our NGOs who work on the ground in Brazil and people from other sectors, from governments. And to try and get that nuanced position of what needs to happen and then what's the role that NGOs can play to accelerate that change. So one example that is a historic one is in Brazil, no one really understood in real time where deforestation was happening and how. And so my philanthropy and a bunch of others got together and funded this incredible outfit called Map, Map Biomas, which exists and it flourishes, which basically maps the entire terrain of the Amazon and gives daily alerts essentially, of deforestation, where deforestation is happening, what's causing it? Is it fire? Is it cattle expansion? And that data has helped so many outfits from businesses that are trying to avoid going into deforested areas that are illegally cleared. Or it's also helped in enforcement agencies who want to get a better grip of where they need to focus their efforts. So that's an example where that's a civil society-initiated thing that has helped with that problem. Probably a longer answer than you bargained for, but that's the kind of way in which we operate. And to go back right to the end on impact, I think there, there are some areas where it's maybe easier to measure in quantifiable terms. So you say like a D1 pill costs X amount, saves Y lives. With this kind of work and this kind of change, the way to evaluate impact is very nuanced to details. And we have an incredible team of what we call evaluation experts and evidence experts that help us navigate that complexity. Because, yeah, it's not, it's not like there's no one number you can put to it. Does that present any challenges to you, both in terms of allocation of resources, but I'm also thinking from a public relations angle as well, that any organisation that is responsible for moving funds around, there is an element of public accountability there, potentially. And I just wondered whether this presents any issues, the fact that it is, it is harder to quantify and impacts are just much harder to measure and demonstrate. Yeah, it's really challenging. And I think the way we address it is not by comparing two different investments. So we call them investments often or grants. Not by comparing, say, a grant in Brazil and a grant in China or take your, take your pick of whatever. But instead, we look at the grant itself. Often, I think that's generally our focus is to look at the grant itself and say, what has that grant achieved? And often you can come to a consensus to be like, yeah, that was a pretty big thing that it achieved or no, that wasn't. So it's often done that way rather than a comparative way. And that sense of what kinds of things, I guess maybe a way to think of it is you start by, as a philanthropy, thinking what are the broad issues and sectors and geographies you want to work in? Is it Latin America? Is it Africa? Is it Europe? And do you want to work on land use, on transport, on energy? And often there's a reason why. And that reason why is often based on what the community needs, what bits are being underfunded. But it also is based on what you can bring as a philanthropy. And there are different skill sets that all of them bring. When you have that sense of the domains in which you're working in, I think the question and the evidence question comes really within that domain. What is the most impactful things that you can be achieving? And there, there's a lot of evidence and science that points you to those things. 
So at a very high level in Brazil, it's very clear that fundamentally deforestation is one of the biggest causes of greenhouse gas emissions. And it's almost entirely caused by the meat supply chain. So there's a very clear focus then for many philanthropies to say that's probably what we should be focusing on. And how can you work with those companies or enforcement agencies, so both sides of the spectrum, to help make that supply chain better? And that's where the evidence comes in, because you'll say, well, I want to make it better in these ways, because I know that these ways are probably the most fundamental ways. And then you measure, has that happened? So it's a very nuanced and layered approach to impact. And in the end, at the end of the day, you're able to say to your stakeholders, and you're right, like the public deserve to know, and they do know through our reports, what has been achieved and what they're able to see are those layers. One is like, what have they chosen as the areas of impact? And then within them, what have they decided to focus on? So it's nuanced and layered. But I think there's been a fascinating discussion, this is pretty off topic. Uh, there's a fascinating discussion among the philanthropic community more broadly, beyond climate, about what it should be achieving. And you've got this movement called effective altruism, which is all about, they do like focusing on what they call existential risk, but often they do want to quantify and measure. Uh, at least that's been the tradition, quantifying and measuring the impact and the outcomes. And I think there's another community that is more focused on what we might call systemic shifts, but willing to go there when you can't quite measure it. And that for me is really powerful because we often can't predict what's going to happen. And it needs to be informed by experts. And I think the best safety net that philanthropy has is by hiring people within philanthropy, but mainly within NGOs that are experts and that are able to guide the conversation. And I'm just going on my hobby horse now. But I think this is one of the most important things for climate change as a whole. I think for so long, we've been, as a world, we work on issues that are predictable. We're like, we need to be able to know what the next step is. And when you talked at the beginning about indigenous communities, you know, I'm not an expert in, and there was obviously such a plurality, I think it's, you never want to generalize too much. But in some of the literature that I've read, there is a, a shift where it's not, it's not really about what can you predict with your rational brain, but it's about when you are in tune with yourself, what emerges. And I'm not saying that's the approach we should take to philanthropy, but I do think there's something beautiful in maybe the shift we use as a society where we move towards things that where we focus on being in tune with ourselves and we focus on enabling those things. You know, the civil rights movement, no one would have known before it was such a success that it would be. Or we take, you know, the fight for women's suffrage, where people were laughing at it in the 1890s and 1900s. And you can take your pick from society. The Iranian Revolution was... No one knew that anyone would try and take down the Shah, and the public did. And I, I do think as philanthropy, I really want us to be looking at, and I think it's so powerful when we take those bets, take those risks. I love that. Having spoken a lot about quantifying impact and so on, there is this, there is this real dissonance that occurs, right, where we're trying to change a system, and yet we're using the logic and the language and the metrics of an old system mm. to do that. And so often we do need new ideas and new language and need to recognize that the values that are going to emerge from that are going to be difficult to wrap up in the concepts and the preconceptions we already have as to what that might look like. I totally agree. I feel like we need to work on two tracks. And I really hope that I'm able to, with my, my work, support those two tracks. One is the short-term immediate, which we have to do. And we have the logic of our current system. We need to find a way to work within it to reduce emissions fast. But we have to do that, I think, at the same time as building this longer track, which is a shift in our values. And fundamentally, I think building 
love and kindness and compassion at the heart of our political, economic and societal systems. And that is probably a longer track, mm. but it is the thing that really inspires me right now and is the movement of people who are trying to build that new system or value set and put that at the heart of everything. Mm. Yeah, I love that you say that we need both because that's something that I really passionately believe and often find myself stuck between these two frameworks you know a lot of the more radical side of the climate movement at the moment is rightly focused on systems change and really trying to enable and facilitate that world that so many of us feel we need whatever it may look like in the specifics and yet you have this talk on the other side of like oh we just need to reach net zero by 2050 if we reach 2050 and yet we're still mining lithium from lands that belong to indigenous communities if we are still chopping down the rainforest if we're still doing all of these things we might be in a position where atmospheric carbon dioxide has plateaued but that's like there's so much else we could be doing and it feels like we're only gonna tackle that kind of hydra of issues if we really go back to the root of the problem it's got really deep roots does that ever overwhelm you it does at times. It does. I think one of the hardest things about working on climate change is being constantly exposed by what might happen and what is happening to people and to nature. But for me, people were, was the, as I mentioned, the, the driver, the way into climate. And I'm a lot better now. I think for a long time I felt really, really overwhelmed by it. But I think I felt overwhelmed because I was more stuck within the logic of our current system which is a system whereby things are predictable and an individual is supposedly able to have hero-like capabilities. Think about the way we worship people like Elon Musk. I mean, I say we, not everybody. I mean, but people do. Or, and depending on your political positioning, some people worship people like Greta Thunberg or they'll worship people like Christiana Figueres who led the Paris Agreement. These are people who are hailed as leaders of the climate transition in different ways. And they are, no doubt, but I think the risk of overwhelm comes when you think it's possible to be a hero that single-handedly almost solves the problem. And that is the logic of our old system, where individuals are hailed as the entrepreneurs of the generation who saved everything. And actually moving to a system where I think it's one based on faith, and I don't mean religious faith, but the logic I think we need of the future is one where you have faith in your in fellow humanity and you're able to sit within your part of this really rich and diverse and beautiful world and say, this is my bit where I'm going to try and help as much as I can. And I know that my impact will only have a ripple effect if others are doing the same. And I'm not going to try and conquer or command them all. And I think that shift in logic and perspective, which for me, meditation has really been a, a big part of in, in helping enable. That's part of how I've come to terms with the risk of overwhelm, which is so common, unfortunately, within the sector, within the movement. It's not the only approach, but it's, it's certainly mine. Mm. I'm so fascinated to hear that because it's a point of view I hadn't really heard expressed until very recently. And I've heard it you're kind of the third person in about a week to express something quite similar, okay. <laughs> but in your own way and very eloquently. And I think, yeah, I had the realization, I think only a couple of days ago that, you know, this is a, this is a team sport and that conceiving of one's own role in activism or whatever it is through an individual lens really plays into, yeah, the hero narrative, but also a kind of capitalist competitive framework of thinking 
I need to be different from everybody else in this in this game and I'm competing in some way. And that actually that's so counter to so much of the change we want to see. And so much comes from community, whether that is the emotional resilience that we probably all all need through this, but also much better conversations, much better solutions. I think so. I just want to add to that 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 hero mentality or the thought that one person can and should find a way of solving the problem is and can be a, a coping mechanism because it is so overwhelming. And the belief that you can have control over it is one that is really hard to let go of. And as soon as you let go of, you're left with either faith in your fellow human and or acceptance that there may well be a lot of harm that is caused to yourself, to your family, but to the world at large. And for those in the UK, it probably is to more to the world at large. And that's not an easy thing to do when you're working on trying to solve the problem. To hold those two, to hold the fact that there's going to be harm done, that you can't control it, and to hold the fact that you're one part of the solution or only one part of the team. So yeah, I, I, just, to, just to add, I, I think it is a, a coping mechanism for some. I think for me, it's been more powerful to try and adopt that other logic of me as one of many having faith in people like yourselves and all the other people I'm so lucky to work with around me who do their best every day to try and make the world a better place. Yeah, for sure. That resonates. I do think on my part, it takes a bit of deprogramming because I'm just so used to thinking on those terms, working in a sector that is highly individualistic and competitive on an individual level and just trying to pick away at that and not take that with me anymore. It's a real challenge. So you you talked earlier about the journey you'd gone on and how it seemed to come really essential to you, actually, that you were following a very purpose-driven career and certainly with regards to these issues in particular. Can you envisage a world in which you hadn't gone down this path or do you just think it was almost inevitable? Hmm. Yeah, and so many ways to take that. On one level, I think I would have always wanted to pursue what I felt to be a purposeful career, placing you know, people... I suppose, over money or status or something. At the same time, I sometimes reflect on people I maybe some some people I grew up with or went to university with or had friends who pursued a, a different path that's fully enmeshed in the in the system that we've been talking about. And many of them seem to not bat an eyelid at that. They're just like they enjoy it. And I think wow, that sounds great. I think for me, you know, the other aspect of my life and I think you know is creativity and music was another thing I, I loved and loved wanted to do more of and still want to do more of and spent lots of my time on. So that's another route I could have gone down. I don't know. I think it's things seem to be have played out and will play out in their own way. I think the hardest thing for me is to try and get out of the logic of what we've just been discussing, like, oh, what should be the next thing I do and how am I how do I make sure I progress and develop and whatnot? And shifting to just what do I what am I feeling right now and moving towards that. Mm. But I think some of the inevitability of a purposeful career does come from my background. I think you can't escape your background. One is ancestral, where I come from a state in India. My lineage is from a state in India that had a history of being maybe a bit more socialist in its in its outlook than others. It was run by the Marxist Party for decades. When you go to Kerala, you see the hammer and sickle sign everywhere. And not to say that they are, you know, it's not, it's not communist, but it's definitely a social democracy. And so there's something there about looking after the people. And then to my family, where I think both of, both of my parents really instilled that in me, a sense of injustice in the world, and therefore a sense of needing to work on it. 
And I think growing up with a lot of inequality when you do in, in London, which you know, it's full of it, yeah, it's hard to escape. So I think it can engender a sense of mission to try and help address it. To what degree do you feel it's important to embody the values that you do in your professional life through your personal life? 100%. I think the professional is the expression of the personal that I want to be or the personal life I want to have and create. I've been doing a lot of thinking about that over the last few months and actually really over the last few years. And I think for me, where I'm landing now is very similar to what we were talking about before. I really want to put at the forefront of who I am what you might say, yeah, love, kindness, compassion towards my family, towards friends, towards people around me. I won't always get it right, of course, but to try. And then I think, for me, work flows from that. And what I'm trying to do more and more is find a way of living my work in that way. Because I think when I started in my professional life, I adopted a sense of what the professional was meant to be. Someone who I'd understood was going to be quite neutral and rational and cold in some way. And it's taken me time to try and flip that and step into myself. I have a coach I'm really fortunate to have through work who's amazing for me. And through her, I've got this phrase of stepping into my power. And I really love that. And it's a sense of you and yourself and your individuality and stepping into that. So that's what I'd, I'd like to do at work. It's not always easy because obviously every workplace environment is shaped by our cultural environment, which isn't necessarily set up for that. But yeah, I like to, I like to, to try. What gives you fulfillment through your work? Yeah, it's a good question. On the micro level, it's the dopamine hits when you get emails through and you get tasks done. And that's something which is a problem as well as a, a good thing. On a day-to-day level, it's people. And it's where you, I feel like I've done something that's helped someone or, or helped an organization. But you know, normally it's personal. It's very personal. I think even organizations as a whole, they're abstract beings. So when I've had personal interactions that have felt that have filled me with gratitude or I feel they have been filled with gratitude for something I've been able to give them. I think the, the, the thread, because that could, that could apply to almost any job, and I think the thread is being part of something where both my, you know, they, they have that ikigai, which I, I love playing around with, but where I feel what the world needs and my skills when I get paid for, all align. And you know, at the moment, climate is the thread that runs through all of that. It's something that helps with climate change. So yeah, I mean, maybe to, to, to be very simple, it's like dopamine, feeling a connection with people and feeling like what I'm doing is having some kind of greater purpose. Mm. I think the, the latter just makes so much difference because everybody has terrible days and terrible weeks at work. And somehow I always think if I, because I have, I have done things that haven't been aligned to my purpose and my values. And when I've been doing that and had a difficult day or a difficult week, there's sort of nothing to redeem it. But I just feel on a personal level, it gives me that resilience, maybe for want of a better word, just knowing that it can get quite bad before I would think, I'm not sure I'm doing the right thing anymore. Yeah, I'm totally, totally with you. It's that resilience, that extra bit of resilience you get on those hard days. I remember one of my former jobs in government, essentially I was part of a team that was trying to cut health budgets by that or at least a significant part of health budgets by that. And I felt no redeeming value from that at all. I'd come back from work on a hard day and I was just, I need some kind of digital distraction to like <laughs> to sedate me and let me sleep. Yeah, I think purpose is so, so important. I have a question about activism because you've described yourself as an activist, but within a professional context. Yeah. And I guess I wanted to know a little bit more about what that meant to you, what the word activism means to you. And also zooming out sort of 
reflecting on the state of climate activism today? Mm. That's such an interesting question. And I mean, it, yeah. What activism means to me, I don't actually know the dictionary def- definition or anything. I think I, I just refer to it. When I think about being an activist, I think about someone who's trying to promote or achieve a cause and a mission, like a purposeful cause, one that is there to make things better in some way. And a climate activist, obviously, one that's trying to make action on climate, etc. But when I, when I was in, I, I saw myself as an activist within the government because I, I felt that I was, the organization had a mission, which is set by, ultimately set by its leaders, the politicians. And my mission on climate wasn't aligned with that. So I think I saw myself as an activist because I wasn't fully performing the role. Maybe there's kind of some kind of rebellion within the word activism where I wasn't performing the role of my organization fully as I should. I wasn't like, this is exactly what the government needs to meet its priorities. I was like, climate is my number one priority. How do I mold what I think is needed on climate to what the government is setting as its limits of how far it will go? I'm trying to push those limits as far as I can. And it'll be very little things. Some of it's quite cheeky things. Like you get something in a speech and you try and get it approved through back channels rather than through formal processes. So then the, gov- the government minister said something and then you say to the other departments, oh, the minister said it, therefore it's policy now. And so it'll be, yeah, I guess there's a bit of rebellion and, mis- and mischief in it. I mean, <laughs> I, you, you don't, you know, I'm, I was a good civil servant too. I, mean, I wasn't breaking the civil service code, but you, you do try and push the boundaries a little bit. But it's interesting, I don't see myself as an activist. I guess I see myself as an activist in my heart now, but not in the organizational sense, because I am, my organization is trying to just do what it can to address climate change. But the state of activism, I, I've, I was so, so inspired. When I walked out of my department, I worked at Bayes, which had the responsibility for climate change, and to a crowd of protests and people out there with their tents. And some of them were really polite. You know, they would say, do a great job today, <laughs> like work hard today, because they knew I was walking in the department to work on climate change. But that was so inspiring to know that all of these people cared and wanted you to do much more, wanted much more. I think that nothing is inspiring as people power. And I've been reading a lot about that from like different movements that have had such a huge impact. And, you know, we can go you know, tons, whether it's in Iran or the Philippines or in the UK, we've got tons of examples. Not always with great outcomes, but incredible power of people. And the, the state of activism today, I think it's, it's come on leaps and bounds over the last few years. It's amazing that we have things like Extinction Rebellion and we have people who are willing to sacrifice in such a way, like the Just Up Oil protesters, because that is a huge amount of sacrifice to risk jail for a cause. I think what we have yet to crack as a movement is the what's put really beautifully, I forget the name, by a civil rights activist in the US, this thing of calling in rather than calling out, making others that are not necessarily at that time part of the activist community, make them feel like there is a way and a space for them to come in, to be part of this community, and not to shame them, not to slur them in any way. And that's how I think we'll be so powerful, because every movement in history that has succeeded in transforming society, and I think it's basically always been through people, the mass of people, but it's through a range of people, a diversity of people across classes, political allegiances, through different professions and races and genders. And so I think that's where I'd love our movement, at least I'm talking about the UK climate activism, to evolve towards. But I think it's such an amazing thing that has come out over the last few years. How would you think? I 
I love that answer. I was just trying to look up who said that. Was it Loretta J. Ross? That's it. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, I agree with everything you've said. I think I struggle a bit around the question of the purpose of activism because a lot of the critiques, particularly of Just Stop Oil and XR, are along the lines of you're not bringing people with you. You're not winning the public opinion battle. And I'm just not convinced that that's the only role of activism. I can't always articulate what it is, but I think it is more complex than that. I think part of it is genuine disruption. I think I think you do need to disrupt and you do need to create a scene and disrupt and interrupt in order to insert new ideas into the conversation. But I'm just really, really heartened by the fact that there is now a lot and that there is just this steady hum of activist presence on social media, on the news, on the streets. And that really heartens me because I think we had lost that for a long time. And as much as, you know, the government are trying to quash that to some degree, as much as I think the media is actually just incredibly hostile towards it in a way that is, I think, going to age really badly. I think it's great that there are so many people out there and they're taking different approaches, but it feels like it's growing every year. And I think that's a good thing. I agree with you. And I actually really agree with you on the point that you made, that it's not about necessarily just having the masses behind you and the need for disruption. I think there's a distinction, though, between how I understand at least calling in, calling out, calling in rather than calling out, and being popular with the mainstream. And to call in is to provide space for people from a range of different backgrounds and perspectives. I think what we sometimes do as a climate movement is shame people. You walk into a room with a plastic bottle and you, that's it. You have people looking at you, they're judging you. You maybe went on a, on a flight to visit a relative and you're being judged for flying. Why did you take the train? It's not just that, but a sense of like, how much are we sacrificing? Have you sacrificed enough to be with us? And for me, it's about creating space for others to enter into the conversation who may not want to pursue the tactics of Just Up Oil, who have a role to play. And I really see the role that they, they have to play. And I really think only time will tell whether they've been effective, just like only time could tell whether the suffragettes were effective alongside the suffragists, going back you know, to the women's rights movement in the UK. But I, I think we need to create space for different groups of people in a way that Extinction Rebellion seems to have been softening its approach which is a really nice counter then to have Just Up Oil, to have Extinction Rebellion as a, maybe a broader base. Just Up Oil is like a slightly, maybe narrow base. They get things onto the conversation all the time. But the home for most people may be elsewhere. And we've got Mums for Lungs putting up posters around my, my neighbourhood. And that obviously caters to a different demographic as well. So I feel like having lots of different constituents within the movement is something that could be powerful, as well as trying to just check ourselves that we are extending our hand out to others rather than calling out or shaming others that maybe could join the movement at times. I think that's that's what I, I meant, but I agree with you that activism has such a myriad of roles to play. It's not it's not binary. And it's certainly not, I don't think, getting a particular policy in place. People would often say in my department, oh extinction rebellion, or they have no idea. They want net zero by twenty twenty five. They have no clue how to do that. I was like that that wasn't the point. I think that was ever the point. The point was to have a mainstream conversation about this, about the urgency we have to work at. Well, completely. And I think, you know, whether it's Extinction Rebellion's demands or just stop oil, I think it puts the onus back on politicians and business leaders and so on to actually say, well, if we don't think we should meet net zero by this date, or we don't think we should stop new drilling, why not? Yeah, 
And I do think there's a difference. New drilling, absolutely. Like it's the mainstream has accepted that. The International Energy Agency has said we need no new oil. I think Extinction Rebellion's one was obviously far ahead of where the science was. So it felt to me, maybe, you know, some people would say that's what we should be doing. It felt to me more as a we need to get our skates on and have a conversation about how slow we're being. I think it's a provocation. And I think it's also, these groups are also incredibly diverse themselves. You know, somebody from Just Stop Oil was talking to me about this recently, where they they said, you know, that from their point of view, they see Just Stop Oil's tactics as enabling more moderate, quote unquote, forms of protest and activism amongst the general population, which is sort of what you were talking about with this slightly more pluralistic approach, right? They were essentially saying not all personalities are going to suit this type of thing. Not all people's values are going to be aligned to this. But if we do this, it just opens the door a little bit for people who maybe come from a more centrist politics or people who feel uncomfortable with that sort of public demonstration, just going a little bit outside their comfort zone, which I found really made a lot of sense to me. There's an there's amazing researcher, neuroscientist called Chris DeMeyer, who's done a lot of work on the science of climate communication. And one of his big takeaways that I recall was decisions guide beliefs. It's not the other way around. You make a decision and then you create a reinforcing belief that justifies that decision and will then justify future decisions along the same lines. And what he was saying about Extinction Rebellion when it first started was how it's really helpful in creating a decision point where there's a conversation. So people then have to say in their normal conversation, day-to-day conversation, am I with Extinction Rebellion? Or if I'm not, then what am I? And most people would say, I think climate action is really important, but I don't like the way they're doing it. That is perfect. Because that is someone who's made a decision that will guide their belief that climate action is really important. It's fine that they don't think they need to go down Extinction Rebellion's approach. And what he was then saying is we need to create more and more of these decision points for people to basically be able to say either that they agree with something really important and needed on climate, or they care about climate, but they don't agree with that. And it just, it helps us build a mass that, and it's not about caring about climate, but caring about like rapid climate action. Uh, and it helps create that mass, that mass mm. movement that we need. For sure. That's a really fascinating insight onto that. Before we wrap up, is there anything you feel like we haven't talked about that you would like to talk about? I think I just want to say everyone can play such a critical role. The obligation is on a few companies and a few governments, or at least a much bigger obligation is on them than anybody. The oil companies, the big developed countries and so on. But... Everyone has a, can play a really important role. And I think one way to look at that is through your levers of influence. And that can be through, you know, if you're a lawyer, it could be in the contracts you write or the clients you take on. If you're a teacher, it could be how much you teach your children about climate and enable them to educate their parents and put pressure on their parents. If you run a business or you run a restaurant or you work in a restaurant as a chef, and it could be what you decide to put on your menu which enables people to then, again, see the the implications of a different approach that is more climate friendly. I I guess I really wanted to say that, you know, we all can play such an important role. And for me, this is not based on any science at all. But I do think if we can all cultivate as much as we can kindness towards each other, fundamentally, that's what enables, that will enable a system that we need for a different world. Thank you for saying that. I think it's a really valuable reminder that you don't have to completely retrain or completely change your career or the path you're on or anything like that. And that's very much the message I'm trying to share is that there are all these little micro pivots you can make. You have so many opportunities to influence and impact in all facets of your life. But particularly, I think 
through work because it's where we interact with most people generally it's where we have access to resources beyond our own and yeah i just i wish so many more people would do that and i think i hope and think that they will over the coming years yeah me too do you want to share where people can find you people can find me on linkedin i think that's the best way i'm more than happy for people to message me get in touch if they're interested in finding their role within the climate world and would love to have a chat about that i'll have some ideas i won't have all the ideas but i'll happy to help amazing thank you yeah i'll put a link to that in the show notes well thank you so much Vedanta, for sitting down and talking today it's been really good to catch up Thanks so much for listening to The Climate Pivot. If you've enjoyed the show and found it useful, I could ask you to leave it a five-star review, subscribe, or donate to the coffee link in this episode's show notes. But if I'm honest, there's one thing I'd really love for you to do. I'd be grateful if you could recommend this podcast to two friends you think it might benefit, who might be at the beginning of their own climate pivots or wondering how and where to begin. I'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, take care of yourself, others and the planet and good luck with your climate pivot.